Well, this morning we continue our walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, but with this in mind, uh, that today is Reformation Sunday, and um, tomorrow is that day uh, in 1517 when uh, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg, the church door at Wittenberg. And while that act is, uh, is significant, particularly within the life of Protestant churches, uh, the truth that Luther, um, again, I call it an epiphany. Epiphany is just a, a, a revealing, like a, an aha, an illumination. Um, and Luther had an aha. He had an illumination while preparing uh, to teach the book of Romans, hence our call to worship this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17, it was on that very passage that Luther was ruminating and preparing lectures that he read a commentary from St. Augustine, and in that commentary, a text that Luther says had troubled him often, because it says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, and Luther always heard that to mean that in the story of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed as the standard by which he would be judged. A standard which just brought condemnation to Luther and, of course, just utter depression. Luther maybe was on the brink of, of like suicidal levels of depression uh, because he was working so hard to try to clean himself of his unrighteousness, thinking he had to measure up to the standard that was revealed in the gospel. Uh, and it was driving Luther into utter despair, that in reading Romans 1 and then reading St. Augustine, who argued that the righteousness revealed in the gospel is, while it is on one hand the righteousness by which we will be judged, even more importantly, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is the righteousness that is a gift freely given to his people in the righteousness of Christ. Hence the verse goes on in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther reflected on that and grappled with it and grappled with it and then came to realize that the very righteous standard of God, the holiness of God, is given to us by faith. The righteous, the just, shall live not by obedience, but the just shall live by faith. That as we live and walk by faith, righteousness is applied to us. Not because of how hard we work, but because of the one in whom we trust. And, and even hearing Tim uh, reflect on his baptism, I, and I wonder, I'm convicted by this. Tim, you convicted me today in your praise, which is not a bad thing to convict the pastor. Don't shake your head as if that's a bad thing. It's a good thing. You can a little notch on the belt there, you know. Um, um, but but do, do, would you all know the 35th anniversary of your baptisms? It's a good question to ask. And why not? If so, why not? Why is our baptism not, not, uh, not more, more, uh, uh, more on the forefront of our minds? Be because, again, in our baptisms, we have the gift of union with Christ, a formal ceremony. It doesn't mean that that's necessarily the moment Tim became a Christian, just like Marriage is not the moment when two, you know, man and woman actually are in love. A man and woman may be in love for many years, but what, but what the marriage is, it doesn't make them more in love, but it formalizes something. It brings a covenant. It bonds them together 
legally. And that's what Tim's baptism is, and that's what our baptisms are. It's, it's a gift from God by which he formally pledges himself to you, and then, of course, we pledge ourselves to him. But I, I mention this now because what Luther came to realize is that in that bonding of marriage, spiritual marriage now between us and Christ by faith and sealed in one's baptism, all that is Christ's becomes ours, just as in any good marriage. And all that is ours becomes his. And hence the cross, where Jesus takes his bride's debt upon himself and satisfies it completely. And in turn, gives to his bride his inheritance, the inheritance that is rightfully his from his father. Now he bestows to his bride and gives it all to her. And the reason you are righteous and the reason you are acceptable to God Again, while you are still sinners, we just confessed that in the service today, but while we are still sinners, we have an eternal inheritance in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ freely given to us by the gift of faith, for his faith that unites us to him. And so on this Reformation Sunday, I, I, would, I would be failing if I did not take a moment to to draw our attention to that. It's, it's, it's what we celebrate as Protestants. It's what makes us uniquely Protestants. Not that Catholics don't believe in, the, in the, the gospel as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has died, Christ has risen, you know, Christ, you know, Christ was buried, Christ has risen. They do believe that. They do believe that. But what we uniquely believe is that our full right standing before God is pure gift. Right? Coming out of the Reformation, the solas, the onlys of the Reformation. Luther said, we are justified only by grace, sola gratia, only through faith, sola fide, and only because of the righteousness of Christ, solo Christo. Not anything to do with you. We are called to be obedient, but our obedience is always a reaction to the gift of salvation, never the cause of it. It's never on that side of the equation. It's always on the result side of the equation. And yes, we must be obedient. And yes, we will be obedient. But never to merit right standing before God. Always because we have the merit of Christ on our side. And so our obedience is always responsive and, and a result of thanks. Now, Luther also, one of his treatises, after he kind of got this renewed, this fire in his belly now, in the depression that this Luther, Luther was, you know, this kind of guy, you know, where he could go from the depths of despair to the heights of, you know, of, of excitement, you know. So as deep as his depression was, is as high as his excitement was when he discovered these things. And he began to preach like a wild man on this stuff. And of course, this then ran him into a collision course with the teaching of the Catholic Church and that led, you know, uh, three, four years later to the Diet of Worms and the the excommunication of Luther, which then brought about the Protestant church, you know, the, in, in seedling form. But in that four-year period, as Luther then began to think through the implications of justification by faith alone, he started writing treatises. And these treatises got him in, you know, in more trouble with the Catholic Church. But one of those treatises was on Christian liberty, where he, he wrote a treatise about the freedom 
that certainly he felt. I mean, his words are beautiful when he when he discovers this idea of justification by faith alone and realizes that the the burden for his right standing before God is not all on his back, which he envisioned it to be. He said when he discovered this doctrine, it was as if a burden rolled off his back and he entered into the very gates of paradise itself. You can almost hear that in like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress where Christian has that burden roll off his back. You know, I think Bunyan is is channeling Luther there. He sees he sees the pilgrim. Uh, he sees Christian as, as a, a, a Lutheresque kind of figure. And so Luther felt this liberty now that he could just spiritually fly. And that's why when the Catholic Church said to him, well, if this is true, if you are justified by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, then why would anybody obey? If, if you tell a person they have everything they need, then why would they care about obedience? And that question made no sense to Luther. Why would I obey? Because I'm free. For the first time, actually, now I will obey, he said. You know, Because now, for the first time, it's not about me. I used to try to obey so I could get something from God. But in that way, my obedience was manipulation. For the first time now, I obey freely. I obey not because of what I get, but because of what I've received. And now my obedience is genuinely directed to God. It's not so I can get stuff or I can go to heaven when I die. He was free, and he felt that freedom. And that affected now every part of his life. And it's to that doctrine that we've been, that we come now and we've been thinking over the past couple weeks. What does it mean to live in that freedom? Do we sin that grace may abound, as Paul uh, says it to the Romans in Romans 6? No, may it never be. Luther would have found that utterly ridiculous. At the same time, what does it mean to live freely as a Christian now? You know your salvation's taken care of if we're united to Christ. So now how do I live in a way that honors and glorifies him? And Paul has been addressing that issue. And he's been looking at a couple particular instances. And we're going to come to that those particulars again next week. In a, in a couple weeks to come. But one of them, for example, has been meat sacrifice to idols. Not a, not a topic where that has daily relevance to us. But we nonetheless have used it as a model to think how what, where is the meat sacrifice to idol issue that we have to deal with as, as 21st century Christians. This was an issue for them in Corinth. Christians who were living in an idolatrous culture and had really complex issues to figure out, like, wait a second, engaging in this Corinthian activity, am I denying my Christian faith? It's a good question. It's a hard question. These aren't easy things. It seems easy when Americans look back at Corinthians. We go, what, no, what are you doing in that, in that temple? Not so easy when, as Americans, we look at American culture and ask why we're doing what we're doing. You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem wrong. It's American. What else would we do? Well, for them, it was Corinthian. Like, well, I have to go there. That's where the gatherings are in that temple over there. And so the Corinthians are asking Paul questions like, but wait, should we be doing that? Should we be getting married? Should I stay married to my non-believing spouse now that I'm a Christian? Like real practical questions like this that they're trying to work out. What we looked at last week was Paul, he had, he had already told them to be willing to sacrifice their freedoms and privileges as the people of God, sacrifice those for the sake of their brother. That if eating that meat is causing my brother to violate his conscience, give up the meat, save the brother. Don't use your liberty to drag a brother whose conscience is convicted on this 
down into sin. Because to violate your conscience, even if it's something that's not sinful, to violate your conscience is sinful. And if your conscience is telling you, don't do it, don't do it. And therefore, if my conscience doesn't convict me, but I lead a brother whose conscience is convicted into it, I'm causing my brother to sin. It's a complicated little argument, but an important one, a, an other-centered one. Then last week, Paul turned the guns on himself and said, so look at me, I'm an apostle. What rights do you think I have? I have all kinds of rights and privileges, yet I'm willing to let these things go for the sake of my brother so that I don't bring shame to the gospel or make my presentation of the gospel ineffectual. And Paul continues that thought in our text today. Let me just read it for us. Page 1018, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. For though I am free of all men, I have made my servant uh, myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became a, as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but, un, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Okay, so Paul challenges us to two things here. One, in the very beginning, for though I am free of all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And hence our New Testament reading today, for uh, uh, the, uh, Philippians chapter 2. Because in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is saying to the Philippians, now remember, if you, if you can see the sequence of your Bible, Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul's going to go on to list his amazing resume. You know, I, was a, I was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, uh, as to the, to the law, I was blameless. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I mean, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Like I have this amazing resume. I, I have privilege. Yet I count it all as loss for the sake of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Philippians 2, he challenges us, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus and which Paul is exemplifying. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ, who though he was in the very form God. Don't forget who we're talking about here when we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God. He is in the very form. His very nature is God. But he did not count equality with God as something to be clung on to. You think about the privilege the second person of the Trinity has. It's absolute infinite privilege. Yet he does not consider that privilege as something to be clung onto, that he has to hold onto for dear life, but rather he can let it go. He doesn't let his divine nature go. He doesn't let his attributes go, but he lets his privilege go. He lets his honor 
go. Taking the form of a servant. Who? The one who is in the very form God. Takes the form of a servant and becomes obedient even to the point of death. Even the humiliating death of the cross. You just feel the, the staircase of that argument just descend. He's God. He becomes man, takes the form of a servant, is obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. I mean, th this is what the Son of God did. And Paul turns around and says, have this mind in you. The Son of God did this that he might redeem the lost. Then who am I to say, well, I can't give up my privileges. I have rights. <laughs> he said, yeah, but, but, but the second person of the Trinity with infinite authority and rights and privileges emptied himself of those privileges. Not of who he is, no attributes being lost there, but of his privilege and honor. And I mean, he, he, he goes so far as to have his own creature spit on him and slap him and mock him and crucify him. And so Paul then, following that Lord, picking up his cross and following him, says, for though I am free of all men, so now here you have Paul like in the same vein, right? Not in the very form God, but in the very form an apostle, okay? I am free of all men. I owe nothing to anybody. I have, I have privilege just simply given to me by the Lord Jesus Christ. He met me on the road to Damascus and said, you're my apostle. I don't owe that to anybody. Nobody can take that away from me. Not Caesar, not you, not Peter. I just have that given to me. But though I I'm, I'm free of all men, I have made myself a servant of all. So Paul has in him the mind that is also in Christ Jesus. And Paul is making himself a servant of all. And he's saying to the Corinthians, this is the mind you have to have. When you're making decisions about do you eat meat sacrificed to idols, the first question is not, well, do I have a right to do it or don't I? That, that is a fair civic question. But, but the question is, how might I best serve my brother? That's just not what comes naturally to us. It doesn't come naturally to me. For though I am free of all men, I've made myself a servant of all that I might win the more. And then he launches into examples. To the Jews I become as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law, i.e. the Jews, I become as one under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. That is to say, when Paul is ministering, I think this is like Acts 16, when Paul gets Timothy and he says, now Timothy, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're going to have to go minister with Jews, it's important you get circumcised. Now, we had just looked, in fact, in this very text, he's like, don't you dare, he tells him, don't you dare get circumcised. If you get circumcised, you're undoing the gospel. He tells the Galatians this. Like, if you, remember, we went into a long spiel on Galatians. You know, don't you dare get circumcised. If you get circumcised, you're putting yourself back under the Old Testament law. And if you want to live under the Old Testament law, I can tell you where it leads. It leads to Golgotha. And if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get. He who comes under the law better keep it perfectly. You don't want that. Christ is your circumcision. Be united to him and you get everything of the Old Testament. Don't listen to the Judaizers and go back and take on circumcision in Old Testament laws. Do not do that. Then he turns to Timothy and says, Hey, Timothy, you better go get circumcised. You know, what? What? You're utterly inconsistent. No, he's not inconsistent at all. 
For those who are coming to be circumcised because they think by this they will be acceptable to God, it's sin. Don't do it. But for Timothy, he's saying, hey, Timothy, you're going to be ministering to Jews who have that way of thinking, and we don't need this to be hurled. You're not being circumcised because you think it gets you right with God, but just as a practical matter, so that we remove a hurdle from your ministry as you go deal with Jews, because that will be a huge hurdle to overcome, better you practically get circumcised. Becoming all things to all men. Paul, the one who basically smashes and trashes the, the, the old Jewish law because now we don't need it because we're in Christ. When at the end of his third missionary journey, he goes down to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple for the purification rites. He gets in Jerusalem and he, not because he's being a hypocrite. Not because, oh, he doesn't want them to know what he really thinks. He's going to be on trial for what he really thinks. But because he doesn't, he's not sinning here and he's honoring the customs of a people that he does not believe is, is dishonoring the Lord. And so he participates. He removes the barriers. I know this is going to be an offense to you if I don't do it. I'm not sinning if I do it. Therefore, I will do it. Timothy gets circumcised. Galatians, don't you dare get circumcised. So in this sense, Paul says, look, where there are things that are negotiable, where there are things that the Bible doesn't directly command or prohibit, I'm going to become all things to all people. I'm not going to let these things, these cultural things, become barriers to my proclamation of the gospel. So to those who are without the law, I will be as without the law. Now here he does not mean living lawlessly, and he even feels the need to put him, you know, we have this parenthetical comment, not without the law toward God. I don't mean that. But he just means without the Torah, without the Old Testament law, Gentiles. So when the Gentiles get together and we eat unclean foods, yeah, I'm eating the unclean foods with them. That's fine. When I'm with Jews and they want to keep kosher, I'm going to keep kosher with them. Now, if I'm eating with the Gentiles and we're eating unclean food and Jews show up, I'm not going to back away like Peter did. They're going to have to deal with that. But when I'm with Gentiles, I'm going to eat with the Gentiles. When I'm with the Jews, I'm going to eat with the, the Jews. And I'm not going to let these cultural things become barriers. And then he gives us the motivation. That I might win those who without the law. To the weak, I become as weak. Hey, if, it, if this person believes that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a sin, I am not going to just drag him into that sin. Then fine, I'm not going to eat either. I will, I will come and join that brother or sister in their weakness and be with them there. Until the time comes when their conscience is strengthened and they realize it's not a sin, then we'll go eat together. But until then, I will become as the weak and I'm not going to take a fragile brother or sister and push them off the ledge. I'd rather not eat meat again, Paul said. I'll give up my liberty. I'll give up my privilege. And so he comes along. To the weak, I become as weak. I have become all things to all men that by, me, that by these means I might win some. And then verse 23, I do this for the gospel's sake. And again, here we can make a little tie back to Martin Luther, because at the end of the day, once Luther became aware of the gospel, that his right standing was not based on anything within him, but just pure gift from God, he was willing to die for it. And he had a little, he stumbled a little bit at the diet of arms. He needed a night to think about it, but he came back the next morning ready to go. And when he came back the next morning and said, no, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. He was like, I'm willing to die for this. Nothing's more important to me than the gospel. And that's what you have here for Paul. Meat doesn't matter to me as much as the gospel matters to me. 
privilege doesn't matter to me as much as the gospel matters to me. And therefore, I will forsake the privilege and become the servant of all so that the gospel might be glorified and so that these brothers may receive it. So now the word of exhortation to us in verse 24. He uses the illustration of athletics, which there were in Corinthians, the, the, the sort of the, their version of the Olympic Games every two years. And they would have understood well these athletic references. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now here he's not undoing the doctrine of justification by faith alone, but he's saying that just like runners run, and they run because they're going to get this perishable crown. They get a little wreath of leaves that dries up in a week, and you, you, know, you try to preserve it, but you can't. But we, we're running for an imperishable crown. Right? You know what's coming. So run, get after it. I think again, Luther, once Luther knew that the gift that was his, there was nothing to stop him. He was never going to run out of breath because it was just, I know what I'm running toward. You know, again, uh, um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Right? Let us run the race with endurance, disentangling ourselves from the sin which so easily snarls us, you know. Let us run with endurance, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Paul is challenging the Corinthians to get motivated by this. Don't be depressed. Well, well, then I can't eat meat. Oh my gosh. Paul's like, what are you, out of your mind? Think about how athletes do it. You all know the athletes. Athletes don't bemoan the fact. You go talk to these these high-level NFL players or NBA players or Major League Baseball players or whatever they do, when they're striving, they're not bemoaning the fact that they can't eat this and they can't eat that. They're like, they're so focused on the goal of winning that it's like, yeah, of course I have to have this diet, this crazy diet. Yeah, of course I need this exercise regimen because it's all about standing on the victor stage at the end. And, and Paul wants to, Paul has that vision for the kingdom of God and for the gospel. And he's like, you don't have to, it's not, it's not a battle to give up meat. Verse 25, anyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They watch what they eat. They watch their time. They get to bed on time so they can get up early and get back to work. And they make sure they hydrate and they make sure they, they're eating properly. So they got the energy to do what they have to do. And he's saying that should be our kingdom vision. Like, do you think that way spiritually? Or again, is the Christian life kind of this thing that's just bobbing along with you through life? That kind of, it happens on Sundays and every now and then it bumps into you when you have a chance to share the gospel. You meet a guy in a hospital, you know, a waiting room. You, you know, you get a prayer request from a, from a, a friend and all of a sudden it's like Christianity kind of manifests itself and then goes back away and we go back to the regular life. That's not how Paul thought. Paul woke up in the morning with kingdom vision, put on his armor, went out on the battlefield ready to go, disciplined himself with his spiritual food, his spiritual drink, got his rest, and went back to work. So verse 26, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I, I do this intentionally. My training regimen is intentional. My diet is intentional. My regimens are intentional. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. 
So Paul says, I'm working with that kind of, of discipline that everything I do is aiming at that goal of spiritual and eternal victory. And again, he's not talking about his justification here. He's talking about the sake of the gospel, the mission that has been given to him. He's been uh, uh, entrusted with a mission to be an apostle for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we as a church have been entrusted with a mission. And we, what we ought to take from Paul today is to pray for a vision of intentionality, that we wake up ready to go. And that we then look at our privileges, hold them loosely, where they can be used to our advantage for the kingdom, use them. Paul will do that later. He'll actually claim a privilege in the book of Acts, right? When they go to beat him, he goes, whoa, I'm a Roman citizen. He calls privilege. And they go, okay, we can't beat him. And he, preserve, he preserves his life, basically, you know, in time. He, he knew when to call on it and when he had to let it go. And so ought we as we think of this in the kingdom because our image is the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was in the very form God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to death, the humiliating death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that imperishable crown. And may we, like Martin Luther, like the Apostle Paul, knowing the victory that is ours in Christ, may we then live thus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only is an example to us, but Father, who has secured the crown for us, and now being liberated from self-reliance, make us servants who cannot be stopped, who wake up every morning with intentionality, not beating the air, not running with uncertainty, but moving with purpose, who see ourselves as servants of all for the sake of the gospel. So strengthen us to that end, Father, we pray. May you be glorified in and through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.